listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you all stand with me as we read scripture? Our reading today comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I suppose I should introduce myself since uh, I'm a stranger to quite a few of you, uh, and just strange to the rest of you, but... uh, (laughs) I am Tom Macy, uh, Kansas farm boy. That's why I'm preaching today, because we have a farm text. And uh, formerly lead pastor at Faith from uh, 2004 to 2017, um, and uh, privileged uh, to continue to be here in a part-time role. They call me emeritus now. Look that up in the dictionary. It just means old. That will save you the trip. Actually, it says, and I quote, honorably discharged from active professional duty. Uh, Again, in my case, I'm still involved uh, about a quarter time with the primary focus on pastoral care and so grateful for that opportunity, but also glad for this rare opportunity to preach and to, in this case, a do-over of sorts from what I preached uh, 10 and a half years ago in the fall of, or late summer of 2012. Uh, the parable of the sower. But this time it's in a different uh, uh, series, different context, uh, called The One. Pastor Jeff kicked this series off with the question of Jesus, uh, question to Jesus from his incarcerated cousin John, called the Baptist, uh, who sent the question to Jesus from prison and said, Are you the one? Who is to come, or shall we look for another? Who is Jesus? Is he the one? He came on the scene preaching the same message as his cousin, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But John, in trouble with the authorities and languishing in prison, no doubt discouraged, perhaps wondering when the kingdom which is said to be at hand will be more evidently at hand. It doesn't look like it's at hand. When will it be more fully realized? So he sends the question to Jesus, are you the one? Jesus answered John, sending back to him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. 
He's an amazing teacher. He's a healer, even raising people from the dead. He's become extremely popular with thousands and thousands of people, and yet not without controversy. The crowds uh, make both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities very nervous. What's going on here? We've got to keep an eye on this guy. He breaks the accepted rules, especially traditions regarding the Sabbath. He claims authority to forgive sins, which the Jewish leaders are highly offended and call him a blasphemer. He claims authority over demons, which does raise the question, then, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? But the Pharisees conclude that Jesus himself has a demon and is acting in the power of Satan. And even in some sense, well, his disciples are on a journey, much like all of us are in our look at Jesus. His disciples are confused. When he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, terrified them. Uh, They were terrified by the storm, and he simply says, calm, peace, be still. And the sea was calmed, but the disciples were even more terrified. They said, what sort of man is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, Pastor Joey, where he ended last week's message, Jesus began to call for decision to separate the crowd from just the thrill seekers and miracle workers to the true followers, those who will acknowledge that Jesus is who he claims to be. He truly is the coming one, the Messiah. He said in Matthew 12 and verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. He's saying it's time to decide and act accordingly. And you see the division. Even where Pastor Jeff started out and the the example of the children in the marketplace uh, playing funeral, playing wedding, and yet there was no appropriate response. Jesus comes and there's no appropriate response. And in the next chapter, he starts speaking in parables, which actually strengthens the difference between true disciples and everyone else. Now, Matthew sets the stage for the parable of the sower, which you've just heard, uh, with an advanced illustration about a good tree and a bad tree in chapter 12. He said, for the tree is known by its fruit. We're going to see that developed further in this parable. This is not a horticulture lesson. It's about a kind of people, an advance on the parable of this interpretation of the parable of the sower, which speaks of different people and their response to Jesus. And then not long before, at the end of chapter 12, he gives us the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, from which he was delivered, is an advanced picture on the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if they could make sense of that or not, but here's what Jesus says about it. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then finally, we come to the parable of the sower. Uh, Matthew 13, that same day, uh, makes a connection to the previous chapter. Uh, Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables 
saying a sower went out to sow. This begins a section of parables, stories relating vital spiritual truth to common everyday things in their world. Farming, fishing, treasures of various kinds. And Matthew 13 alone has eight parables. And we're looking at the first one. And I want to cover it today in three parts. First, the parable. Well, just a little summary of it. Number two, the purpose of the parable. And then number three, the meaning of the parable. So first we have a parable, in this case a story that Nick's already read to us. You've seen it in your Bible, I trust. If you don't have your Bible open, please grab one and open it to Matthew 13. But let me summarize it for you, this parable itself. A farmer went out to plant a crop. Now, we're 2,000 years away from this, so the image that you might have is going to be different than what they had, because this is not a massive, computerized, self-steered, John Deere diesel tractor pulling a 60-foot-wide computerized planter, putting each individual seed at the precise depth and separation from the other seed to create maximum crop yield, able to plant 300 acres of corn or soybeans in a day. Or a wheat drill drill that is 120 feet wide. Indiana farms are too small for that. But out in Kansas, they have big farms like that. It's, it's not that picture at all. It, it's a man, uh, he wore different clothes than we wear today too. And so he's got a long flowing outer garment. And he picks it up like this. And he creates a kind of a pocket where he can put his seed here. And he walks out into the field. He takes the seed out of the, uh, out of the place he's holding it, and he just walks and scatters and scatters the seed throughout the area where he hopes to receive a crop. The seed came to rest in four places, the hard-packed path where birds ate it, no crop, no harvest. On a thin layer of soil with rock underneath where it quickly sprouted but died in the heat of the sun because it could not put its roots down through the hard rock right under the soil to get the deep soil retaining moisture. No crop, no harvest. Third, a place where vigorous thorny plants overwhelmed the seedlings, robbing the moisture and nutrients, blocking the sun and preventing a crop. No crop, no harvest. This is getting discouraging. One more chance. Number four, an area of good, rich, clean soil where the seeds sprouted and thrived, grew to maturity, and produced an unbelievably good crop 30, 60, or 100 times of what was planted. Now, that is an astounding number when you look at the context. I'm told that tenfold was a pretty good return. Now, I also learned that today with corn, five to six hundred fold return is the benchmark. And so, again, we're blessed today to produce a tremendous amount with uh, very little. But uh, tenfold harvest was considered good. So, this 30, 60, 100 times of what was planted was a tremendous, tremendous success. 
But we have three examples of utter crop failure, one example of remarkable success, and this is the story after which Jesus says what? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? <laughs> nice story. But what's the meaning? What's the moral to the story? Farming is really tough. <laughs> Maybe it's a gamble. What's that possibly got to do with me? I left the farm 55 years ago in 1968 because I needed more than two cents per bale in order to afford to go to college. So I went in the automobile business. So I'm pretty distant from the farm. Some of you are really distant from the farm, never very well connected to it at all. Some of you more so. Well, what are we to learn from this story? Even the disciples who knew the agrarian culture from which they came are scratching their heads. And so they went to Jesus after they were by themselves, not the big crowd, and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning, we don't understand. We don't get the point. Well, this is one of the few parables that Jesus does give explanation for in verses 18 to 23. Most of the parables don't have this. So we'll come to the meaning of this parable in just a few minutes, but, but that ex the, the, actually the last part of the sermon, but that explanation was given only to the disciples, not the crowd. So that's puzzling. Why would he share this story and then not explain it? Well, before we get to the meaning of this parable, we have an interlude that addresses the purpose of parables in verses 10 through 17, and, and specifically this one. What's the point? Parables are real life stories that can take many forms, metaphors, similes, word pictures, illustrations, proverbs, one-liners, they're all kind of in that category designed to make a connection between ordinary life that you're living in the contemporary world with the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. They often have a primary lesson, sometimes more than one, like Aesop's fables. Uh, and I did a little quick research and found out that Aesop, actually the Greek, uh, lived about the same time as the prophet Jeremiah. I just read prophet Jeremiah this past month, so that uh, has nothing to do with sermon. I just thought you ought to know that. So. <clears throat> Aesop's fables. You've read them. You've heard of them. The tortoise and the hare. What's the moral of the story? What's the point of the story? Well, the race is not always to the swift. Or slow and steady wins the race. There's something to be learned from that story. But this one and some of the parables of Jesus, it, it seems to leave the listeners scratching their heads. And, and so the disciples confront him about it and say, why do you speak to the people in parables? And his answer is not just surprising. It's frankly shocking. Look at verse 11. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. For the, to the one who has, 
more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You're seeing, but you're not getting the point. You're hearing, but you don't know what it's about. You're not understanding. Now, this, of course, ties back with his statement right at the end of the parable. Verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus is building on a theme that is found throughout the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament book of Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear over and over again. Indeed, in their case... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, Jesus says, and this is Isaiah 9, uh, 6, 9, and 10, where Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry um, is similar to what Jesus is teaching here now. It has a strong theme of judgment in it. And so it is saying it will be for those who are, parables are for those who are closed, their hearts are closed to Jesus. He says, you will indeed hear, verse 14, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes, they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What? Why could that, why would that be? This is what Jesus says with the Old Testament supporting material for what he says in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, I've been told all my adult life, 47 years of of preaching, that you need to tell more stories, because stories is what Jesus did, and that'll help to make things more clear. Well... I agree with that to a point. I am always looking for stories, illustrations that will help to communicate the truth in, in, in some form. But that doesn't fit here because he says the reason he told these stories, these parables, was not to make the truth more clearly understood, but to confuse them as a judgment on them, those who refuse to see and hear, to leave them as an act of judgment in their darkness and ignorance, which is the consequence of rejecting the light and truth that God has graciously graciously given, both in natural revelation. Don't forget the importance of natural revelation. As I drove in this morning, the incredible beauty of this day, at least it was at 8.30, beautiful sunshine, incredible day that God has given us. The witness of creation was all over the place today. It is every day, just in different ways. And not only the created world, but special revelation, the revealed word of Scripture. He told parables as an act of judgment on those who refused to see and hear. Now, thankfully, that's not the whole story. Parables have a role to conceal the truth as an act of judgment on those who won't see and listen. But they also have a role to reveal the truth for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. What does Jesus say in verse 9? 
You should have it memorized by now. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For those who want truth, for those who are willing to listen, willing to see, it will be revealed. And so Jesus closes this explanation for the purpose of parables with these words to the disciples in verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear. This is a new day. Not for more prophecy, which we have the full Old Testament of, and it's thrilling, the promise of what's to come, but the day has arrived. Well, not every part of it, but a significant part of it. The one has come, Jesus the Messiah, whose presence is coming on the scene, demands a response. And so here's a fundamental question for all of us here. Will you believe? Will you receive Jesus Christ, the one sent from God to be your Savior, your Lord, your King? Now, that's not all there is to say about the purpose of parables, and and maybe I can share a little bit more on Cut for Time, our after-sermon podcast that should be out in a few days. But uh, that's the focus here, and it comes out even more as we close today with the meaning of the parable. Now, at first glance, the parable is pretty straightforward. Those who uh, heard it could uh, easily uh, relate to uh, the example from farming in an agrarian society now the big city of Indianapolis, uh, unless you get out in the country and, and pay attention as you're going down the interstate, you maybe don't hardly aware of the importance of farms today. In fact, we really don't need farmers anymore because we have grocery stores. I mean, I think that's kind of the, kind of the attitude that, that some people have. Um, but no, we better understand the importance of farms and farming, but that should help us also to understand, begin to understand what he's saying about the meaning of the parable. In, in this case, which is rare with parables, Jesus explains in verses 18 to 23, he explains the meaning of the parable. So let's, let's look at each element and find out what it represents. Uh, first, the sower, or we would say the farmer. Uh, sower is kind of an old word. It just means to, to plant the seed. Um, to me, this is the, the first part and perhaps the most important part of the parable, even though there's not much explanation about it. It's often overlooked in the preaching of this parable. In fact, many people have said, and commentaries have said, and preachers have said, well, it shouldn't really be called the parable of the sower. It should be called the parable of the soils. That's the issue. Well, then why did Jesus call it the parable of the sower? That's his title, not mine. So I think we rush by this part too quickly. Who is the sower? The sower, I contend, is Jesus himself, and by extension, his disciples, extended then to the church, you and me. And I believe that's highly significant for understanding the main point of the parable. I'll come back to that a little later. Number two, the seed. What is the seed? Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, this is what was sown along the path, the word of the kingdom. Mark 4 says the farmer sows the word. Luke 8 says the seed is the word of God. It is the 
gospel. It is the big story of the Bible illustrated and prophesied throughout the Old Testament and now brought to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus calls it the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, inaugurated by Jesus in his coming to the world and his explanation of what life is under God's rule and reign when individuals and ultimately all of society will be under his full authority. Not by force, but by personal conversion, the change of hearts, what Jesus called being born again, or as Luke explained, or Jesus explained, recorded by Luke, the gospel, the, the kingdom of God is within you. It's a heart thing. When we hear the gospel, when we read the Bible, the seed, God's word, is being sown into our hearts. When we proclaim the gospel, preaching and teaching the Word of God in formal or informal setting, we become sowers of the Word, or we might say under-sowers. Jesus is called the great shepherd. We're the under-shepherds. In the same way, Jesus is the great sower of the gospel seed, and we are under-sowers. We're commissioned by God to take His Word to the world. Third component is the soils, which represents different People in how they respond to God and His Word, representing four heart conditions. Hard hearts, shallow hearts, divided hearts, and then finally receptive hearts. Now this could be a sermon all by itself, and we're just getting to the last third or so, but, um, or it could be a whole series of sermons. Uh, But we start with hard hearts, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now it says he didn't understand it. It means he didn't consider it. He didn't didn't welcome it, didn't receive it. And so it's snatched away. It's taken what kind of person is this? It's the, 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 the person whose, whose words, the, the word that's preached just doesn't penetrate the heart at all. It's like throwing seed on concrete or on this piece of wood. It's not going to penetrate. It's not received. And if they continue with that hardness of heart, they're in danger of last week's passage, the unpardonable sin continuously, all the way through life, rejecting the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to draw you to receive Christ. You reject that all the way, there's no forgiveness for that. Eternal loss. Shallow hearts. As for what was, verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures it for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is spiritual curiosity. The benefits of the gospel are appealing. No, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. But when problems come, I get disappointed with God because I don't have what I want now in my time, and so I turn away. The shallow heart person gets excited about spiritual things but doesn't have the staying power. When life gets hard, he wilts under the pressure. It's a temporary faith, not a lasting faith. Hardship, persecution just aren't acceptable to that person. 
And so they walk away. Here's a, here's a strange question to ask this crowd, I suppose. Uh, how many of you watch the Farming Channel on television? <laughs> yeah. Anybody? Anybody admit you ever watch? It's called RFD-TV. Uh, there's, there's one back there. Finally, there's a couple. Okay. It's an amazing, amazing... John Wolfgang, the, the barber, uh, who's actually in the hospital now, so he's not here today. But uh, he told me about it, and I kind of got hooked on it. It's fascinating for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different kinds of programming. But I switched to it yesterday for just a few minutes when I was having some lunch. And it, it was about crops, and they showed this cornfield with incredibly beautiful corn, uh, still fully green, not, not turning ripe yet, but, but fully uh, reached full height. And they took a backhoe and they went next to the row of corn and dug a trench down beside the row of corn where they, could ex- where they exposed the roots. You could see the roots coming out, an amazing number of them coming out of the corn that's above ground going into the ground where it could be bringing nourishment to what's above ground. An amazing thing. That's what brings a good crop. If you don't have that, if you're not well-rooted, you don't have a good crop. And that's what happens to the person who has the shallow heart. Then there's the divided heart. As uh, for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Two major pulls represent the thorns that choke the seed. The worries of this life, your priorities, your values, your interests, your loves, ultimately more important to you than Christ is. Interest in the gospel is secondary to your love for the things of the world. Security, acceptance, and then materialism, which gets to the next point, the deceitfulness of wealth. Jesus says, and Paul warned about this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some by longing for it, by having a divided heart, have wandered away from the faith. So focused on popularity, fame, success, wealth, a divided heart, is spiritually unresponsive to the things of God. So what do we have here? We have three categories that are crop failures. No crop, no harvest. No interest or limited interest that turns away into unbelief. But there's one more. Praise God, there's one more. Receptive hearts, verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in, the, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Genuine reception of the gospel is made evident by fruitfulness, undeterred by either the persecution that comes or the temptations of money and fame. Christ is recognized and as more valuable and is received with an open heart. The evidence of genuine spiritual commitment is seen in the fruit. 
Now, back in 2012, and this is not the 2012 sermon, though parts of it have leaked into this, but uh, back in 2012, I, I introduced an idea when I preached this p- same passage that I picked up from the late Warren Wiersbe. He was alive then. He died in 2019 at age 90. Um, a structure for applying parables that he called mirrors and windows. Like a mirror, parables help us to see ourselves more accurately as we look into the mirror. And like a window, parables frame God's truth as the corrective to our thinking. And so let's hold up the mirror for a moment. Let's look at this parable as we're looking in a mirror at ourselves. An honest assessment that begs to, to, to be asked is, 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 what kind of soil am I? Hard as concrete, no response. Shallow as a thin layer of soil on the rock underneath. A supernatural interest, I want the good things of the gospel. I want to be blessed by God. Who doesn't want to be blessed by God? But not interested in the suffering and hardship that goes with it, a divided heart, loving money, career, popularity, my body, my friends, even my wife, children, and grandchildren, more than God, so that I really don't have room for God in my life. Jesus, one of the hardest sayings, uh, in, in some ways you might say he overstated to make a point, but don't miss the point. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and grandchildren more than God. Brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What do you see in the mirror of this parable? May God give us Receptive hearts to replace our hard, shallow, divided hearts. But what about the window of this parable? Two things are taught here. This is, I want to get us to what I think is the main point. Most obvious in the parable is that in responding to the gospel, many will respond with less than true saving faith. There's lots of outward response. Probably the most Amazing example in the 20th century, and I think this is going to be different going forward now, but you have these massive stadiums filled with 50, 60, 100,000 people as Billy Graham preached the gospel, invited people to come forward, and many came forward, and many were truly born again. The majority weren't. They were the shallow soil. It didn't hold. There wasn't lasting fruit. It wasn't genuine faith. It was temporary interest. Secondly, I believe the story is a window into our part in sharing the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, it's bothered me that many insist on renaming this the parable of the soils when Jesus called it the parable of the sower. What's the role of the sower here? Now, one of the mistakes we make with any illustration, and certainly can with parables, is we we try to to give a meaning to every every little detail of it. And one thing, if you're real picky, like me, you might say, well, what's this farmer throwing stuff on the hard rock for? 
Why, why does he just go to the good soil in the first place and not have these three crop failures? What's wrong with him? Well, we can criticize the sower if we want, but we better look at what the sower is actually doing. Is the sower criticized for where he puts the seed? Or is the parable affirming the sower for scattering the seed widely, sharing the gospel everywhere? And I believe that's the case. Craig Blomberg, uh, New Testament scholar, sees three points to this parable, two of them relating to the responses of people to the word. But the first point he suggests addresses this very simply, and I believe correctly, like the sower, God spreads his word widely among all peoples. Indeed, what does the Bible tell us that the word will be presented to the entire world, every ethnicity, so that in the last day, people from every tribe, tongue, and people will come. But do you know when you go out to share that word, do you know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond? Of course you don't. It's not up to us to judge who has the hard heart, the shallow heart, the divided heart. You may find some places that are more fruitful than others that may affect the strategy you use. I think that's legitimate. But our role as God's Farmers, the under-farmers of the great farmer, Jesus himself, is to sow the seed, to sow it widely and trust that God can even break up the hard path and break up the rocky soil that's on rock and break up and bring life out of the thorny patch and open hearts to receive the gospel, to receive Christ. You know, the... The, the, the West right now seems to be getting increasingly hardened to the gospel. Europe, the United States. Um, while in unlikely places like China, Iran, the Middle East, and North Africa, all across sub-Sahara Africa, it seems like, wow, this is it's, it's very fruitful. Uh, 30, 60, 100-fold is, is, is not an exaggeration at all in some of these places. Who knows what God might be doing in hard places like North Korea, where we don't have a view to what's going on there. Or what will God do? Part of your prayers for the people of Turkey and Syria. What will God do through what now they estimate 33,000 deaths from this earthquake? But what will God do to use that even to open hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look at everything in the news through that lens. And you'll have the heart of God for the world. Our role as, as faithful farmers, especially in the hard soil of the West, cast the seed widely, trust God to make it fruitful, to bring light and life to people in the darkness, because the one who came to die for them is their only hope, and God who provides salvation is the one who open hearts, who breaks open even the hardest of hearts. You know examples of that happening. Hopeless individual, a person who never can love Jesus, and they do because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit. I close with uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. I come to this passage time and again for encouragement. Paul says, For what we proclaim, that is the seed sown, 
is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the one. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Open our hearts to the new birth. Keep sowing the seed. Trust God for the harvest as the one, the only one who can save us is presented and hearts are opened. Let's pray. Lord, you know each of us and where we are. Are we responsive to the word that has been sown in our hearts? Have we become hardened? I pray, O oh God, that you will give us a longing for the vision, the commission of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, the sower of the seed, that we might join with him in sharing this good news with a needy and desperate world in anticipation of that great day when people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered in worship of the one, the great Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.